Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new and settling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. This story takes place quite a while ago, but it's never very far from the front of my mind. Back in 2001, before cell phones were as prevalent as they are today, I was a mom in my early 30s who had just driven our kids to the pediatrician. The Macon, Georgia doctor's office was an hour away from our home, and I was just taking the two youngest of my three children to our scheduled appointment. Because we lived so far away, the office always gave us the last two appointments of the day, and we were grateful for this. The doctor had just built a new building off a fresh spur of the highway, so the location was quite isolated in every direction, but a very nice facility compared to his old spot by the hospital there. His new building was also pretty far back on the new lot, and my car, a black Jeep Cherokee, was only one of four, maybe five cars in the parking lot when we arrived. I parked near the front door, removed the kids from their car seats, and for the next hour or so, we waited, saw the doctor, paid, and finally exited back outside. At that point, mine was the only car left in the lot as I loaded the children in their car seats for our trip home, but as the receptionist locked the front glass doors, my car somehow wouldn't start when I turned the key. There was just this odd clicking noise. Gathering the children once again, I knocked on the door until someone allowed us back in and asked to borrow their phone to call a nearby garage for service. I found one in the phone book, and the man said that he would come, but that it might be a bit. So I told him my location, left to go back out to the car, rolled down all the windows, and loaded the kids back into their seats once more as we waited. Soon, we watched as all the lights were turned out in the building again, and everyone left their cars departing one by one from behind the building somewhere, leaving us now completely alone in this parking lot. As it was still light out, I spent a lot of the time trying to tend to the children, digging through our car for snacks and a bottle, making sure that they weren't getting too hot. You know, all the motherly duties. Although the service station attendant said that it was probably going to be a while, I was pleasantly surprised when a truck pulled into the empty parking lot pretty soon and a man got out of his pickup, smiled and nodded to me, and said that he was going to raise the hood. He was middle-aged and a bit scruffy, but quite frankly, many gas station attendants sometimes look that way, especially near the end of their day, and I was grateful when he began doing something under the hood almost immediately. I sat down again in the driver's seat with the door open, waiting for him to tell me to try the engine, but he seemed to be taking a long time checking the connections and I longed for him to just grab jumper cables, yet he never did. Without getting out of the car, I asked him what he thought was wrong, and he said, oh, it's just a loose wire, not the battery, and continued doing whatever he was doing. I couldn't see his face at all from where I was sitting, but his hands were slightly visible through that long horizontal slit between the windshield and the raised hood as we waited. More than once, he said that it was merely a loose wire, And if I would just come up here really quick, 
he would show me which one it was, so it would never happen again. I remember kind of smiling and shaking my head, saying that sadly there was no reason to show me anything, as I didn't know anything about cars. I just thanked him and continued to stay in the driver's seat, again simply waiting for the inevitable sign to try to start the ignition that was most surely coming at any moment. At one point, I remember thinking that he was definitely flirting as he spoke, but I was trying above all to be polite and kind, as he was indeed helping us. We were hot and tired and a fair dose of miserable as well, and truthfully, I was distracted with my kids. Oddly enough, he was starting to sound a little frustrated with me, because I wouldn't come up and look at the engine. I remember thinking that I certainly didn't want to make him mad where he left us all alone there, now that the sun was sinking so quickly. And then, the strangest thing happened. Another truck suddenly pulled into that desolate parking lot, and as it did, this nice guy working underneath my hood suddenly slammed it shut, ran to his truck, started it, and drove off without hesitation, without even saying a single word of goodbye. I was confused and a little anxious when this happened because I didn't know now who was arriving. I even remember feeling a little frightened that he had suddenly left me there alone with two little ones, defenseless. Why wouldn't he at least stay and speak to whoever was parking next to me now? It certainly seemed the southerly gentleman thing to do. I looked around and was very aware once again that there were no visible cars on the road, no homes or businesses nearby, and the sun was continuing to fall behind the horizon. As this new, also unmarked, pickup pulled in next to me, I got out of the car once again, this time a bit more apprehensively. Upon exiting, though, he immediately introduced himself, and his name and voice seemed to match who I had spoken to on the phone much earlier. He then actually called me by my name, apologized for being so late, and finally smiled and stared towards the road pointing and asking who the man was that had just left so suddenly. Relieved and unfazed, I just smiled back in surprise and told him, well, I don't know. I thought all this time he was you. And we both laughed slightly as he then grabbed jumper cables, walked to the front of my car, raised the hood once more, and began to work. I immediately sat back in the driver's seat once more, suddenly grateful that, with luck, that the air conditioner would be blowing full blast shortly and once again checking on my children. While listening for the familiar words of try it, I had my back completely turned towards the children when he surprised me by suddenly coming up to the driver's side door. In the strangest voice, he said, Um, ma'am, is this yours? And when I looked into his hands, he was holding a long, thin, dagger-like looking device that was about a foot and a half in length. It appeared to be very old and covered with reddish rust. Yet, on one end, it had tiny, circular, small finger holes, as if it was a mix of a long, thin sword and scissors. An odd combination, I know. I remember being amazed, but not frightened, and I asked where he had found them. Under the hood, was his response. I said, just matter-of-factly, that I had never seen them before, but how weird was it that those things had somehow been stuck and undiscovered in my car for the entire length of time that we've had it, as I shook my head in surprise. He continued to stand there and just stare at them, 
unbelievingly, and he looked oddly pale as well, like he couldn't find the words to speak for just a bit, continuing to stare at the unusual object. Honestly, I didn't care one bit about it. All I could think of was getting the car going, letting me pay, and leaving. He didn't say anything else, just quickly set them on the curb, started his truck, and then signaled for me to start the Jeep. And when it immediately caught, my three-year-old cheered. Grateful, I quickly turned on the air conditioner full blast, rolled up all the windows, aimed the air vents back towards the back seat, and reached for my purse to pay out. I stood up and took a few steps to meet him so I could hear the amount that I now owed. With both of our vehicles running, he came back around to my driver's side. But instead of handing me the bill, he walked right past me and picked up that weird object once more. Ma'am, he said slowly, I want you to look at these one more time. And he held them out for closer inspection. This time, I moved a bit closer and actually really looked at them. In his hands, the item still appeared incredibly large, possessing an almost bayonet-looking quality, except for the strangely small two loops on one end. I had never seen anything like it, and told him so. As he held it, he spoke quietly and slowly to me, as if trying desperately to make me understand something that was somehow still going over my head. These weren't hidden somewhere in the engine, ma'am. They hadn't been there very long at all, because they were sitting right on top. They must have just been put there. I shook my head no and half smiled as I said, but they're obviously very old and rusty, to which he pointed more closely and replied, yeah, but see how sharp they are? These look like they've just been sharpened. And when I looked down, he was right. The long, skinny, dagger-like shape was unusual, but by far the oddest quality was just how sharp it appeared to be. The edges at the tip where the rust had been removed were gleaming silver in the light. As I paid him, his final words to me were, Ma'am, I don't know what was about to happen here, but I'm really glad that I pulled up when I did. He quietly thanked me when taking payment, told me that I probably needed to call the police when I got home, and then asked me where I wanted the item. I didn't want to touch it, didn't want to take it at all, but I released the back window so he could place it inside. We both then left the lot together, him turning one way, me turning the other towards the small winding highway that would lead home, still an hour away. I did indeed contact the Macon police the moment that we arrived home, and I got the children inside safely. But although they listened politely, they declined when I offered to bring the scissor-like thing to them later. The officer I spoke to said that they sounded as if they were specialized surgical shears from my description and measurements over the phone, which I found quite disturbing, as you can imagine. I remember wondering how would he even know that? Why would he say that? I had tried so carefully not to touch any of the surfaces, hoping that they might be able to lift prints or tested for blood if they wanted, but the story seemed to bore him a bit, and he didn't seem interested. His attitude insinuated that, as there was no longer an emergency, it was of no importance now. At the very end of the call, as if to wind things up, he did say that it sounded as if I was very lucky that evening, and that I might want to keep the shears for a few days, just in case someone from his office got back with me later. But that was all. I wrapped them carefully in newspaper, and placed them in the brick storage unit behind our house. And there they remained for several more years, 
untouched, until we moved away and I finally, not wanting to bring them across several states, reluctantly threw them in the trash. Around that time, though, if you look through old news reports, women were going missing all over Georgia. Some bodies were eventually found, but others remain missing to this very day. I have often wondered what would have happened if that service station attendant hadn't arrived when he did, if my children would still have a mother, if I would have still had my son and daughter, if I would have missed all these years with them. I guess I'll never know, but I learned something very important about myself that day. I had always felt that I was pretty aware of my surroundings, pretty good at reading people, and staying safe. But because I was exhausted, and tired, and hot, and stranded in a different city, my common sense and intelligence simply left me for a bit. And many of my friends and family still think that our car trouble that day and my lack of awareness could easily have cost us our lives. This situation happened when I was 19. I'm going to be honest and tell you that I'm not the best looking dude, so I've never had much luck with women, and I ended up on Tinder. I wasn't having much luck there either, until like the third month of using it, when a blonde woman named Katie messaged me. She was pretty enough that I just dismissed her as a bot. It wasn't until three days later that she messaged me again, which was odd because bots almost never messaged more than once. I clicked on her chat and replied, then looked at her profile. What I saw was pretty generic, but definitely wasn't a bot's profile. We had been talking for like a month when she proposed the idea that I come to see her. I was pretty reluctant as she lived nearly eight hours from me by car, but I had to admit, I really did like her quite a bit, and I had been thinking about asking her if I could come see her for a while now. After a bit more badgering from her, I finally said that I would take the drive to go see her. At this point, I had no reason to doubt she was who she said she was. We had video chatted every other week and called most days. I just assumed that I got really lucky. Things did get a little weird on the way there though. She kept messaging me, asking me where I was, and making sure that I was still coming. At some points, when I took more than 30 minutes to respond, she'd send me a slew of annoyed texts. Admittedly, I had chalked this all up to her being nervous about me coming to see her in the first place. I was pretty nervous too, so I couldn't blame her. I had a hard time finding the house at first. The directions she gave me were pretty confusing, and it was back through a series of gravel and dirt roads and a large thicket of trees. It was still about midday when I came onto an old-looking house. A window on the second floor was boarded up, but it didn't look abandoned by any means. Just a little worse for the wear. Katie's red buggy that she liked to talk about was parked in front of the garage. I took out my phone and texted her that I was here. She only sent a smiley face in return. When I got out of my car to go knock on the door, I noticed someone was looking at me from one of the second floor windows. I found it a little creepy, but figured it was just her father or something. She had told me that he comes to stay with her every now and again, so I ignored it and knocked on her door. She answered with a smile and even gave me a kiss, which surprised me, and I followed her inside. We sat down on her couch and started talking about our plans when I asked her about her dad. You didn't tell me your dad was here, I said. Was that going to be a surprise or... Katie looked confused and told me that her dad wasn't here. 
I still thought she was keeping up the act, and I told her that she didn't have to keep pretending, and that I had seen him looking at me through the upstairs window. Katie went pale as a ghost, and said that we had to get out of there. Now. We both ran out to our cars, and when I questioned Katie, she informed me that her dad wasn't there, and that she had been home alone until I had shown up. I called the police, and while I was on the phone giving the address, Katie gasped and pointed to the window where I had seen the guy last. He was looking at us from out the window once more. I got a better look at him this time. He seemed older and frail, almost like he hadn't eaten anything in a while. He left the window after he saw that we had seen him. The police took nearly half an hour to show up, and the whole time Katie was crying, mumbling about how she was an idiot for not keeping her doors locked. When the police finally did show up, one started asking me and Katie questions and the other two searched the house. They came back out a little later and told me and Katie that while they didn't find anyone, they did find that the back door was hanging open. Whoever was inside had run outside into the woods, but the cops were sure that the house was empty now. After the cops left, Katie asked me to stay the night because she was rightfully scared to be in her house alone right now. I gladly did and we slept downstairs on the couch as Katie's bed was the room next to the one the man had been in. Katie had also brought out the shotgun that her father had given her, but she had never used. I told her that everything was going to be fine, the man's gone, but she insisted, saying she'd feel safer if we had it out. To this day, I'm glad that she had that thought. Later that night, I'm laying wide awake watching TV. Katie had somehow managed to fall asleep. From the kitchen, I had heard the sound of a doorknob being turned. At this point, I wasn't even scared. I was just pissed. I flipped on the light in the kitchen and pointed the gun right at the kitchen door. And there he was. The guy that had been in the house before was standing on the other side of the glass door. He looked shocked, and I'm glad we had locked that door. The man unfroze at my sight and yet again ran into the woods. I woke up Katie and told her what happened, and she called the police once more. When they arrived, they did a sweep of the woods and found no one yet again. They told both Katie and myself that it would probably be a good idea to stay somewhere else for the evening. Me and Katie said our goodbyes, she was going to stay at her friend's house, and I was headed home. I left a little after Katie did. I was on the phone with my brother, telling him about all that had happened. My headlights were on and I was just sitting in the driver's seat. But as I was talking, something caught my eye. Out of my periphery, I see that same frail man leering at me while partially hiding behind a tree on the outskirts of the thicket. It looked as if he thought he was concealed, but the edge of the light beam cast by my headlights did just enough to illuminate him against the adjacent darkness. I gunned it out of there at that point, didn't even bother calling the police again. But I did text Katie, and she said she was going to call them back. While we ultimately did talk and text a while after that meeting, that night was both my first and last time ever hanging out with Katie. And funny enough, according to her, that night was the last one that Katie ever spent in that house alone. This takes place maybe two or three years ago, but I still think about it every now and then when I'm walking alone 
and there's no one else around. I was volunteering at a school in a rural area about three miles from my home. I didn't know how to drive, and I have an irrational fear of biking, but that's another story. So I didn't mind walking home every Wednesday. I was 19 at the time, but I just know that I looked at least three years younger. Short girl, round face, big eyes, no makeup. It was winter, and it was cold, raining, and I had no umbrella. It's fine though, I liked the rain, and I was covered from head to toe, so I still enjoyed my peaceful walk with music blasting through my headphones. But as I was walking, I saw something in my peripheral vision that I was always scared to see in a situation like this. A car slowing down, seeming as if they're following me. I didn't know what to do. I tried not to assume the worst, and I turned to see whether that was the only car on the road or if there were potential witnesses in case something happened. Nope, just this one car following me, no one else around as far as my eyes could see. That's when the driver lowers his window and I get a look at his face. Old man seems to take care of himself, meaning he doesn't look weak and his eyes are fixed right on me. He says, where are you going? Would you like me to take you somewhere? I take out one earphone and I say, huh? I had heard him because at that point I had already turned down the music to be more aware of my surroundings. Plus, despite not wanting to assume the worst, I still wanted to buy some time to think of an out. Where can I run? Can someone hear me if I scream? Can anyone else see us? Where can I get help? Well, there was no one and nowhere to run or really hide. I was walking in a very rural area on the side of this road that had a field on one side and woods on the other. There was just one abandoned house up ahead. So I tried to reason with myself. This man is probably just concerned that I am visibly walking a long distance, right? Me. Oh, no thanks. I'm fine. I like walking. He says, oh no, no, I don't care about that. I just want you to get in the car. What? Um, maybe he's concerned because it's raining and I don't have an umbrella. Me trying to give him every benefit of the doubt. I say, no thanks. I know it's raining, but I like the rain, so I'm okay. No, I don't care. I just want you in the car. I'll drive you wherever you need to go. For fuck's sake, really? I'm giving this potential kidnapper two excuses and he doesn't take them. His intentions are becoming clearer and clearer by the moment. I can't ignore this anymore, and he never breaks eye contact. Like he's analyzing my every move, every thought, every reaction. I'm starting to notice that his smile is starting to become more sinister too. Is it just my fear tricking me? This whole time, I'm trying to look as friendly and as naive as possible because I don't want him to realize that he can't trick me into getting into his car, and his only choice would be to use force. It's important to remember that there's no one around to hear me if I scream. He says, listen, I just want to talk to you. Can I? Uh, well, okay, what is it? No, no, no. I mean, I want to talk to you properly. Get in the car. I just want to talk. That's the only moment when he breaks eye contact, and it's to slowly look at me from head to toe. That's when he says, well, you know what, how about I park a little bit further up, 
and you can join me to have a chat. Uh, yeah, sure. I don't know if you'll find a place to park anywhere close, but go ahead if you want, sir. I'm only walking straight anyway. Perfect. I'll see you there. He smiles and drives away. I wait for his car to be far enough so he can't directly see me, and I immediately run towards that abandoned house to hide while I make a call to my mom for her to come and get me. The police wouldn't do anything since I'm not in immediate danger. We've tried to call them once after some serious threats from a stalker, and they just told us to only call them if the stalker was on our property. But that's also another story. I explain everything to my mom as quickly as I can, and she tells me to send her a screenshot of Google Maps with my exact location, just in case something happens, and to stay hidden while keeping an eye on the road to see if that man's car appears again. I'm about to end the call when I see his car drive by once more. And what do I see? He's looking dead at me, as if he already knew where I was hiding, and he's waving at me with a smile on his face, still with this trying very hard to seem friendly vibe. He knows I'm hiding and on a call with someone now. He knows I wasn't as naive as I pretended to be. Then he just drives off. My mom is still on the phone with me, so I tell her what just happened, and she tells me to stay calm and to wait for her. We end the call. I wait. He doesn't come back. My mom's car appears much faster than I anticipated. I get in, and we head straight home. I still can't wrap my head around exactly what happened and what could have happened. But sir, whoever you are, no matter what your intentions were, let's not meet again. <laughs>